Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of Chuck Knoll, A Winning Way, Jim O'Brien. Jim O'Brien, author of the book Chuck Knoll, A Winning Way. How long have you been a sports writer? I've been a sports writer. I'm 71, and I've been getting paid to write sports since I was 14. Okay? I had got my first printing press. My mother and I were Christmas shopping when I was eight years old. I was delivering the Post-Gazette at the time with my brother, and I was reading the sports page when I'd come home from delivering the paper. And I'd read Al Abrams in the Post-Gazette, and he talked about being in Chicago and Los Angeles and Notre Dame and Miami and interviewing ballplayers. And I thought, that sounds like a great gig. I think I'd like to do that. So I always knew as a youngster that this is what I wanted to do. There's a lot of people who would love to be sports writers. How did you get to make a career out of it? You know, that's a good question, and I'm not quite sure I know the answer. I just kept writing. I met Myron Cope when I was 14 years old. I met him at the Pitfield House. I was working for a local weekly newspaper, and we had the best boxing team in Pittsburgh. It won the Golden Gloves team championship 11 out of 12 years. This is back in the 50s. And I'm 14, and I meet Myron Cope, and he was working for the Post-Gazette. He was their best writer, but he was an underutilized writer. They didn't give him good assignments. So at that time, the Golden Gloves was his best assignment, and it was mine because we had the championship team. So I saw him there, and he was scurrying around with his typewriter, little portable, and I stopped him in the, in the locker room, and he liked me better then because I was smaller than he was, because I was only about five, six, and I was a little kid. And I said, Mr. Cope, what do I have to do to become a writer? And he looked at me disdainfully, and he said, kid, you got to sit down and start writing. <laughs> and... It's the best advice I ever got because it's, it's what you have to do. In order to write books or in order to meet deadlines in the newspaper business or in your business, you have to sit down and do it. And somebody just a year or so ago told me that uh, I would be good at doing something because I was disciplined. And none of my nuns in grade school ever told me that I was disciplined. So it was good to hear at this stage of the game that I'm disciplined. But I do think that I bring an enthusiasm, a passion, an interest. My wife, is, Kathy, keeps telling me not to do any more books because uh, she just thinks we ought to cool it a little bit. But I'm a writer, and writers write. That's what I want to do. So I'm going to sit down and start writing. And I'm, all, I'm working on new books. You are, because in the back of this book, you say this might be your last book. But I've gotten so many letters telling me not to do that. Um, people keep on asking me what's next, and I don't tell them because it's a very competitive business, and there are a lot of people out there with story ideas and book ideas. And I wrote the, my, the book on uh, Chuck Knoll because nobody ever wrote one on Chuck Knoll, and I had about uh, five inches of files on Chuck Knoll from interviews I had done with him, many after he had retired. I was somewhat surprised by the depth of the interviews that I had. 
Chuck Knoll was kind enough to invite me to his home in Upper St. Clair, later his home in Sewickley, both uh, suburbs of Pittsburgh. And I was somewhat surprised at the time because I just asked him if I could talk to him. And he said, why don't you come by the house? And he lived a mile and a half from me in Upper St. Clair. Myron Cope lived halfway in between. What a, what a trifecta that is. Uh, Myron called on Chuck Knoll from time to time to, when something wasn't working, when, when his television was on the blink or some mechanical thing wasn't working. Myron would, would call Chuck Knoll. And Chuck Knoll always liked to show writers how smart he was and that he knew a lot about a lot of things, not just football. So he would come over and fix Myron Cope's, uh, and I think Myron Cope might have been the only other media person who enjoyed the access that I enjoyed with Chuck Knoll, that uh, I think he felt comfortable in our company and he knew that uh, we weren't out to get him. Uh, so he was always kind to me, he was always thoughtful. And uh, deep down, there's a lot to be said, and Chuck Knoll, I think, is in my book, A Winning Way. It tells you a lot that you don't know about him or about the Steelers of the 70s. Who were you working for at the time? I was working for the Pittsburgh Press, the late Pittsburgh Press, and I was covering the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, but I had, met my, I had met Art Rooney when I was 19 years old, when I was the sports editor of the Pitt News. I met him, and they really had very primitive uh, facilities at that time. They practiced at the fairgrounds in South Park. Uh, that was where they had uh, animals and horses and cows and everything else. So the field was tricky sometimes in practice. You had to watch what you were, where you were going and uh, you had to dodge uh, what the uh, cows might have left behind. Very primitive. How did Art Rooney treat a 19-year-old kid from college paper? That's a great question. I always tell people, Brian, you come prepared and you do. Interesting thing about that, uh, how did he treat me? He treated me as if I were working for the New York Times. He talked to me at length and he told me about who his favorite writers were in New York, people such as Red Smith and Jimmy Cannon and Dan Parker. And I, I soaked it up, I was all ears. Three days later, at the Pitt News, I get a postcard from Art Rooney in which he apologizes if he came off as a know-it-all in his conversation with me. And as they say in Casablanca, that was the beginning of a beautiful relationship because in the book that I did earlier called The Chief, I reproduced several postcards that he had sent me from places such as Ireland, Mexico, Canada. He, he uh, had an interesting life. He, he went to religious shrines that happened to be near racetracks. So he was able to follow the horses and uh, pay his debt to God as well because he was, uh, as a young man, he, he was involved in a lot of different activities that were borderline as far as being legal and so forth. And whether it was booze, women, whatever, sports, you name it, he was involved in it. And I think uh, he cleaned up his act as he went along. He quit drinking altogether, which was a real penance for his sons because he frowned upon anybody in the family drinking. Uh, he wouldn't let any of them drive Cadillacs, so they all drove loaded Buicks. Uh, he didn't want people to think that they were rich, and, and he thought that it would be difficult to negotiate contracts with football players and keep the price down if you were driving around town in a Cadillac. So I learned a lot from, from Art Rooney, but the thing is, he understood people, and he was a very humble man. 
And I find that the sports personalities who've endured in this area, uh, you mentioned in, when we were talking before we went on the air about Arnold Palmer. People in Western Pennsylvania like the kind of people like Arnold Palmer and Mario Lemieux and Bill Mazeroski uh, because they're down to earth. They don't think they're a big deal. And Art Rooney didn't think he was a big deal. You say in your book, Art Rooney Sr. spoke to the players after every game on a one-on-one -on -one basis as he walked through the locker room. He would shake their hands. and He missed the immaculate reception because uh, he thought they, were, they had lost the game and he had already headed down to the locker room to more or less uh, offer them condolences for it. He was that way in funeral homes. He went to more funerals than anybody in the city of Pittsburgh. And he taught me, I go to too many funerals these days because Art Rooney said that when a friend or a relative loses somebody, it's more important to go to the funeral then than it is when that particular individual dies. Think about that, and it makes sense. But as a result, I go to too many funerals. But Art Rooney, they used to, uh, people that worked for him used to circle names in the obituary section that he should go to see because they knew who he knew and who he liked and so forth. And the Irish like funerals. They're very big on wakes. Uh, the obituary section of the newspaper is sometimes referred to as the Irish sports section. So Art Rooney was really into that. And when my father died, I was, I was uh, 25, 26 years old, and yet he sent representatives of the team to the funeral home. Uh, when my brother passed away, when my brother Dan died, he came to the funeral. And it was like having a cardinal or a bishop in the room. He just quietly moved around. Everybody recognized him. And he would pat people on the hand or on the shoulder or say something quietly. And he traveled many times with a fellow named Ed Kiley, who had preceded Joe Gordon as the public relations director of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And Kiley sort of became his right-hand man and traveled with him to make sure everything was okay. And they would go into funeral homes to see a particular person or family. And if there were two other people laid out in the funeral home, he would go and see them as well. And then he would leave with Ed Kiley, and he would turn to Ed Kiley and say, how do they know me? How do they know me? So he didn't think he was a big deal. But I think at the same time, he recognized that he had an impact on people, a positive impact. So you were a sports writer covering the Steelers in, at times when they had some lousy teams, right? They had some bad teams, especially when I was a young fellow. Um, one time I was talking to Art Rooney. I used to go to see him in his office at Three Rivers Stadium, and before that when he was at the old Roosevelt Hotel. Uh, my grandparents were gone by the time I was, you know, four or five years old. He was sort of the grandfather I never had. And I recognized that he was somebody special. And I didn't just go to see him when I was interviewing him. I would go to see him to be in the company of a wonderful man. And one time I was talking to him and he said to me, see how you're just sitting there talking to me? He says, Chuck Knoll never does that. He says, Noel doesn't come in to see me. He said, he's Dan's boy, referring to his oldest son, Dan Rooney, who's now the emeritus president of the Steelers. His son, Art II, is now the official president of the team. But he said, he's Dan's boy. He goes in to see Dan and talks to him. He said, he doesn't come in and talk to me like you're talking to me. Well, when I was working on the book, The Chief, Pat Hanlon, who was the public relations guy at the time, suggested that I use the library, Mr. Rooney's former office. He had died and his office was turned into a library with books such as we have here. It was interesting to go through those books, for instance, because they were loaded with mass carts 
he used mass cards or the cards that you get at funeral homes to hold places in the books. But I'm in there working one day, and the Steelers would walk by, and I could see them through a glass. They had taken a, the wall down and put in a glass pane, just a one piece of glass. And I'm sitting in there, and everybody could see me, and I could see them as they walked by. I was sort of a fishbowl. Well, one day Chuck Noll walks by, and he sees me, and he comes in and says, what are you doing, working on your master's degree or something like that? And I told him what I was doing, and I, and I told him some things I had learned about his players. One of the things that he said offhandedly was he said, I'll bet you found that they all had strong mothers. Now that was his experience. His father was sickly, ill. His mother was, was the force in the family. He said that, and, I, and I, he said, I want to I hear when you're done about some of the things that uh, you've learned. And as he was talking to me and sitting there and smiling, all of a sudden, almost as if it were an apparition, I could see an image of Art Rooney Sr. on the glass behind him, looking over his shoulder and smiling. And it was as if he was looking in on our conversation. And what it was, was a reflection of a painting, an oil, of Art Rooney that was on a nearby wall. And his secretary, who stayed on after he died, she would often show visitors in that room, she'd have you stand in a certain place. Like if you stood in a certain place, there you could see Art Rooney. I remember Tom Jackson, the national analyst in football, saying that he had witnessed that. Now I told Pat Hanlon about it, and he, he suggested that I keep it to myself, that, that I was seeing ghosts. But I really felt, after I sat in Art Rooney's desk and worked on that book, I felt his presence. I thought he was helping me do the book and do it right. And when I tell you about what I learned, this book, Chuck Noah, Winning Way, when I was in the home stretch of doing it, I said to my wife, Kathy, I said, if you read this book, I said, you will be impressed by how profound the Steelers are in their expression of their experience of playing for the Pittsburgh Steelers and particularly of their experience with Chuck Knoll. He, he knew the kind of players that he wanted. He wanted smart players. He had played for Paul Bryan in Cleveland, his hometown. And Paul Bryan was the first coach who had a full-time coaching staff. He was the first coach who gave the players intelligence tests. And Noel played both ways for the Cleveland Browns, so he had to take both tests. And they, there's an a, a, there's a apocryphal story about that in which they say that Noel finished the one test in the one room, ran across the hall and finished the test in the next room and aced both of them. So he was smart. And Paul Brown believed that smart players would serve you well in the long run and that stupid players would let you down. Uh, uh Paul Brown drafted Chuck Knoll in the 21st round, so not exactly a gold. Uh, no, he didn't. Gold medal player. No, but uh, you know, in the old days when the Steelers had 20-some draft picks, they picked people like Andy Russell and Rocky Blair just as late, and uh, the Steelers picked some people. Number one, uh, Dick Leftwich comes quickly to mind. Uh, Bob Ferguson of Ohio State comes to mind. Uh, Gary Glick wasn't a bad ball player, but he never should have been a bonus choice. And of course, they had some great players such as Johnny Unitas that they let slip through their fingers. They had Lenny Dawson. They had Earl Morrill. They should have had Sid Luckman from Columbia, and they 
they traded him to the Chicago Bears for some draft picks or something like that. So they, they fooled around and they lost a lot of good quarterbacks until they come up with Terry Bradshaw. And of course, he was the second number one choice of Chuck Knoll. Chuck Knoll's first draft pick was Joe Green. So he drafted good players. Was, was Dan Rooney the one who hired Chuck Knoll? Yes. Dan Rooney got very lucky when he hired Chuck Knoll. First of all, Dan Rooney is often mentioned as the, that his first pick was Chuck Knoll's. And no, his first coaching hire was Bill Austin. He hired Bill Austin from Green Bay. He had been an assistant coach and offensive line coach for Vince Lombardi. And Lombardi had all those great teams in Green Bay, and people were hiring his assistants. But none of them, Bill Bingston comes to mind, and they didn't succeed. They didn't succeed. Austin was here for three years and didn't do a very good job. He tried at times to be Vince Lombardi. So that's one of the good things about Noel. Noel had coached for three of the great coaches of all time, all in the Hall of Fame, Paul Brown, Sid Gilman in Los Angeles, and then that became San Diego Chargers, and then Don Shula in Baltimore. So he had a good pedigree, but he never, he picked up things from each of those three, but he never tried to emulate them. He never tried to be them. He was comfortable being Chuck Knoll, and Knoll was different than any one of those three people. Why was it that Chuck Knoll was able to turn the Steelers around and the previous coaches weren't, Bill Austin was not? Well, the, one of the themes in my book is that, uh, and it's expressed by Art Rooney Jr., who headed the scouting department at the time. He's the second son of Art Rooney Sr. There were five sons. Dan was first, and then comes Art Jr., sometimes confused with Art II, who runs the Steelers these days. One of the great chapters in the book is about Art Rooney Jr. because 26 years ago, he was fired by his brother Dan. And neither one of them touched that subject in the books that they did about their experience with the Steelers. But I, I got them to talk about it in my book. And uh, Dan wanted to hire Joe Paterno to coach the Steelers. And Joe Paterno, and I think wisely so, believed that he belonged on a college campus. And there are chapters on Joe Paterno in the book and, and dealing with him because two of the Steelers Hall of Fame players, Jack Ham and Franco Harris, played for Joe Paterno. Joe Paterno presented Jack Ham at the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And it's interesting to see the two divergent opinions about Joe Paterno and the Jerry Sandusky scandal at Penn State that are offered by both Franco, who remains loyal to a fault as far as I'm concerned, and Jack Ham, who says, pedophilia, no, no excuses for that, no. And yet he's always said that Joe Paterno had even a greater influence on him than did Chuck Knoll because of his age at the time. So there's all sorts of cross-currents in this book of uh, me interviewing those Steelers of the 70s. And Andy Russell, who did the preface, said that the Steelers trust me trust me with their stories, and will tell me things that they might not tell a writer who comes in from out of town. I also know their stories. I know what buttons to press to get them to talk about them, and I also exercise journalistic judgment, which is rare these days. It's rare in young writers. Of course, I'm not a young writer anymore, and sometimes when I was a young writer, I didn't exercise it very well either. But I know what to write and what's best left unsaid, because it doesn't accomplish anything and it doesn't achieve anything. And I think, you know, I always respected Chuck Knoll. I learned from him 
and I learned from Art Rooney. And that's the thing, that, that's why you read books. You should read books to learn what can I do. And very often I find myself, you know, what would, what would Art Rooney do? How would he handle this? And with Chuck Knoll, he wasn't as much a people person as Art Rooney, but he taught the Rooneys. This is getting back to your question. The Irish tend to go in circles before they tell you what you ask them. So do politicians, so do Irish politicians. But the thing is, is that Art Rooney believed in, in Chuck Knoll, even when the first year he was one in 13. He said he lost the games, but he didn't lose the players. And I think it was important that they were a good fit. Uh, Art Rooney is a very spiritual man, and so is Dan, uh, Art Jr. They go to Mass all the, every day. They did. And uh, Chuck Knoll took great pride in his Catholic religion. Uh, he liked the fact that they trained at St. Vincent College. He liked the atmosphere there, the Benedictine priests and nuns and brothers. Uh, he had gone to a high school in Cleveland that was Benedictine High School. So. All those things go together. They, they, were, they were good for each other. And the thing that Chuck Knoll does for the Roonies is he taught the Roonies how to run a successful pro football organization. Prior to his coming, they were not a successful pro football organization. So his coming and Dan's ascending to the throne of the Steelers at the same time, uh, I've often said, and this sounds like heresy in Pittsburgh, but Dan Rooney achieved more in pro football than did his father. His father's one of the pioneers, helped get the thing started and helped keep the Pittsburgh franchise together. But Dan ran a much more successful operation and the Steelers became one of the most uh, consistent, they, and they keep coaches, they don't fire coaches, they give them a chance. Sometimes you can have a good coach and you might not have a good season. Well, so when did Art Rooney turn the team over to Dan Rooney? Well, he turned them over. I told you that Chuck Knoll comes along in 69, so uh, Austin would have been there around 65, 66. So that's the time that he turned it over. But he was a presence. He was there all the time. Um, he loves sports, Art Rooney. Loves sports. And that's one of the things that, you know, he always said that if he weren't an owner, he'd like to be a sports writer. And he also said if I were a sports writer, I'd go to the losing locker room first, because that's where the action is. So he was a wise man in many ways. Is he right? Is that the oh, illusion sure. locking room? Sure, because they're, uh, they're upset, and they're probably down on their dumps and might say something. But that's where, again, where I think journalistic judgment comes in, into play, where uh, I've done interviews with people for, that were four hours long, and maybe they said one stupid thing in four hours. They let me into their home. And I, you know, and they would say something to me later about, I wish you wouldn't. I said, I'm not using that. Because it wasn't the heart of what we talked about. And I think that if people let you in their home, you shouldn't be going through their drawers. When, uh, when Chuck Knoll became head coach, how much decision did he make about who the players were? He taught everybody. That's, a, that's another thing that's important in the book. Chuck Knoll believed you have to teach people how to do their jobs. So he trained the scouts. They had scouted before, but he told them what he was looking for, what qualities. And they weren't these things you hear about in the combine in Indianapolis now about vertical jump and how fast they can run the 40-yard. How, how often does a lineman run 40 yards? So 
he wanted football players, and he was willing to take smaller football players. He, he used a lot of undersized linemen, but they were very good at uh, the great feet work, footwork, I should say, and they, they could uh, pull out and run sweeps. They could uh, do different blocking schemes because of their size, and then he built them up also. Uh, I deal with that subject, too, because, uh, you know, people in Pittsburgh are rather critical of athletes today that are on, that have been juiced up or taken steroids, and there's no doubt that there were many Steelers of the 70s that were on steroids and admitted as much in later years. But it wasn't illegal at the time. It wasn't illegal, and there wasn't a knowledge of their, uh, the effects, long-range effects that they could have on you. So there was uh, an ignorance about the use of drugs. But uh, when he was with the San Diego Chargers, they were one of the first teams that actually uh, took undersized players and, and built them up got them bigger and stronger. There's, forgive me if we jump around a bit, but uh, the Steelers were originally in the NFL and there was the AFL and they merged and the Steelers moved into the AFC. How did they persuade the Steelers to be one of the teams to... Turned out to be one AFC. of the best decisions they ever made. At that particular time, the Steelers were not one of the wealthier teams, okay? They, they'd gone through some tough times. And the Roonies didn't have another source of income, as many owners do in professional sports. Usually the sport is a sideline or a hobby for millionaires or billionaires. So when the, when the, two, team, when the two leagues merged, I covered the Miami Dolphins in their last year in the American Football League. And of course, people in Pittsburgh made fun of me for that but because you know, you're, you're with the enemy. But I really wasn't. And, uh, when, this, when the leagues merged, you know, they merged earlier, but when they actually started having the inter, interleague competition and so forth, that was in 1970, the um, Steelers didn't want to, they didn't originally push for the idea of going to the uh, American Football Conference. Dan Rooney was not for it, but the old man wanted to be with the Cleveland Browns, and he would only go if he went with the Cleveland Browns. And then they talked Carol Rosenblum of the Baltimore Colts, the Colts of Johnny Unitas. They talked him in. And they got uh, several million dollars to come into the league, the three teams. And that was paid over a three-year period. And at that particular time, that money came in handy for the Steelers. And it really, it really was great for it because it legitimized the new conference, having those three teams, but it also, everybody benefited from it. And see, Art Rooney and, for instance, uh, the Maras in New York, Wellington Mara and so forth, they saw that it was better for the league if everyone did well. And they, they you know, I don't think Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys thinks that way, but they could have made more money. They, they could have taken a bigger share, those teams such as, but they wanted the Green Bays to be able to exist, you know, a, a small market team. Did the Steelers and the, and the Colts and the Browns benefit by moving into the then American Football League, American Football Conference, because it was weaker teams? I mean, were no, they it almost wasn't weaker teams. It was not? No, no. It's like I covered the ABA, and believe me, they had some great players in the ABA when they came into the NBA. In the very first year of the NBA, uh, half the All-Star team was from the ABA, and the first team that won a title was the Portland Trailblazers, and they had Dave Twardzik from the Virginia Squires, and they had uh, 
uh, Maurice Lucas from the Spirits of St. Louis in the starting lineup, so they won the title. Bill Walton was the centerpiece of the team. But no, there were great players. See, that's another thing. I was in the Army in Kansas City, Missouri, at the Army Hometown News Center. And I worked in the press box while I was out there. I, um, I would, see, that's why things worked out for me. I took advantage of where I was. I was that's in the Army. Army job to be a no, soldier. my Army job was to send stories to the hometown papers about guys doing a five-week refrigeration equipment repair course at Fort Eustace, Virginia, or something like that. You never forget. <laughs> the, uh, the thing that I did was on my own time, I would go to Municipal Stadium in Kansas City, and I would help out in the press box, do whatever I could to help the sports writers. Football, I spotted for Charlie Jones and Paul Chrisman, the University of Missouri All-American, and a great Cardinals quarterback. So I met people, and I got to know them. And Roger Valdeseri was the PR man for the Chiefs. He was from Bel Vernon, Pennsylvania, and then he had worked at Notre Dame. And now he's with the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, so I'm helping out. And that team had Lenny Dawson, who the Steelers had cut. And they had Buck Buchanan and Bobby Bell, and they had a great team. And they, they won the AFC title. And I was there. I come home to Pittsburgh, and I would go visit Art Rooney, and I'd tell him how good the Chiefs were. And I remember Bill Burns, who was the, the uh, news broadcaster for KDK Television in Pittsburgh, he was a crony of Art Rooney, and he would scold me about telling him the Chiefs were good. He said, we cut Lenny Dawson. And I said, yeah, well, you cut Johnny Unitas. So that doesn't mean that you know quarterbacks when you see one, because Lenny Dawson became one of the great quarterbacks. They had Jack Kemp at the same time. They didn't use him, and he became one of the great quarterbacks in the American Football League. Uh, so Earl Morrill became a terrific quarterback. They got rid of Bill Nelson, and he became a star quarterback with the Cleveland Browns. And Art Rooney always said, we should know a good quarterback when we see one because we've gotten rid of some of the best. So that, all these things go round and round. When you say you're jumping around, well, I tend to do that in my books a little bit. But I think my books are reader-friendly because you can read the last chapter first or the middle chapter first. Each chapter stands on its own merit. When did you become a full-time sports writer? I've always been a full-time sports writer, it's, and it is full-time. It's at night when you're supposed to be sleeping, you're thinking of how you're going to construct a story and where's the best place to start, what's the best middle place, and I'm always on the lookout for stories. Uh, my kids accuse me of uh, eavesdropping on conversations at restaurants and so forth. I find that some of the best stories I've ever gotten were at tailgate parties and with fans and so forth. Uh, they tell stories, and they've had experiences that are different than the sports writers. And the sports writers tend to spend too much time, way too much time together. It's incestuous behavior as far as I'm concerned. You can't learn anything listening to people griping about working conditions at the office. Well, can we trace your, your background a little bit? You worked for newspapers in Miami, you mentioned, and in New York also? Well, when I was in college, I went to work at the Pittsburgh Press uh, as a sophomore and I worked on Cityside. And I, that was a wonderful opportunity. I actually had an opportunity to cover front page stories with a byline when I was in sophomore in college. I was offered a job when I was a sophomore because I won first prize, second prize, third prize, honorable mention, honorable mention in a national collegiate writing contest. So I was offered a job by the St. Paul Pioneer Press when I was a sophomore. I never thought twice about taking it. I mean, there wasn't into one-and-done ballplayers in those days. When I think about it now, that's what I wanted to be. That's why I went to school. 
but I'm glad I stayed at Pitt because it was, it contributed to my growth. And now I'm teaching at Pitt. I teach a class in Pittsburgh sports history for seniors. And uh, they grade me. I don't grade them. They grade me. I got getting the best report cards I've ever gotten at Pitt <laughs> as a teacher, more so than as a, as a student. I take pride in knowing who's who and the stories of Pittsburgh. And, and Pittsburgh has quite a sports history. Western Pennsylvania has quite a sports history. And I've worked at the other end of the state. I, the next year, I worked at the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, the late lamented Philadelphia Evening Bulletin at uh, 30th and Market Streets in, the, in Philadelphia. And one of the reasons I went there was because Philadelphia had the best sports writers in the country, in the country. You had Larry Merchant, you had Stan Hockman, you had Sandy Grady, you had George Casita, who actually came out of Pittsburgh but went to Philadelphia. He was great. Uh, Warren Brown, you just, you had so many great sports writers. Ray Kelly, I covered the Phillies with him. So I spent a summer there. So I went where I needed to go to be with the writers that I could learn from. And I don't know that that's done so much anymore. And the, the other thing where I benefited was from working in Miami and Philadelphia and Kansas City in the Army and even in Alaska and Louisville when I was in the Army and working in Miami to get started, I know what other cities are like. And I know what their pros and cons are. And I don't think you can truly appreciate Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania if it's the only experience you've ever had. Well, Alaska? Oh, I spent 10 months in the Army in Alaska. Put out a newspaper. Put out, I went there to be the assistant editor of the newspaper. Two weeks later, I was the editor. When I got there, they had a 12-page paper. When I was there two weeks, we had a 28-page paper. I had a television show. I had a radio show. Just for the soldiers? Just for the soldiers. Can you compare for the, the other cities you worked in, the, the, the fans, the sports fans in those towns to the sports fans in Pittsburgh? Well, for instance, and this is... Pittsburgh thinks it has the greatest sports fans in the world, and, and, they're, and they're great. They're terrific. But Philadelphia does, too. And uh, Penn State has fans all over the, all over the state. Uh, people in Buffalo, we put them down. We put people in Cleveland down. Guess what? People in Buffalo and Cleveland are the same people that are in Pittsburgh. When I spent nine years in New York, I was always defending Pittsburgh to New Yorkers. When I'm in Pittsburgh, I defend New Yorkers to Pittsburgh. I think any, when we went through that 9-11 experience in New York, anybody should realize that New Yorkers are flesh and blood and they are good people. And I, you know, I think people are what you ask them to be. I think people are what you are. They'll respond to you. I think one of my gifts as a writer is that I can get people to tell me stories. And I know what to do with them. And I don't use a tape recorder. I'm so old-fashioned, uh, Brian, it's, it's scary. I mean, I have a flip phone that I use just to call my wife. But I know how to spell. I think I know the proper English language. Do you write longhand when you're sometimes, taking those for interviews? Sometimes. Oh, yes, I write longhand. And sometimes when I'm sitting on the porch relaxing or something and I have yellow legal pads and I actually will start writing the framework of a story or making sure that I don't forget. That becomes more and more important as you pass 70. You have to write down your notes to make sure you don't forget. When you write your books, do you use a computer? Or yes. You do. When did you switch over to that? Well, a lot, of, a lot of my contemporaries never did. 
I like to say that that's my one jump into the uh, modern era. I do use a computer, and it's it's easier to write these days than than it was early on because you can have second thoughts, you can change it, you can go back, insert a sentence, and so forth. So, and also clean it up. There was a time when I used to have to retype my stories, retype them because I didn't want to turn in dirty copy. I wanted it to be clean. It's easier to read, so I would do it over again. And I've gone through a lot of different kinds of transmitting machines through the years. Um, there were times when I wanted to throw them out the window of hotels in various cities in America because something wasn't functioning properly. But just uh, coming into today for the interview, I was in my car and I was driving on the Mon Valley Expressway. And I would see road signs to Charleroi and Monongahela and Denora. And I crossed over the Joe Montana bridges. And it just reminded me of, I know great athletes from all those cities and I've met them and I've interviewed them, whether you're talking about Stan Usual or Stan the Man, Deacon Dan Toller, the Los Angeles Rams, uh, Fred Cox, uh, the Griffies, the Galifas, so many great athletes. And when I see those signs, I'm working on something right now about Western Pennsylvania. Uh, I, know those, I know those communities, I know those towns, and I know what they're all about. And so I have rich material to mine to do these books. And I've done 23 now in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania. What made you decide to, to leave the newspapers and the, the daily media and go to writing books? Well, I, I'd had a couple different jobs in a certain period of time where I left and went to work at the University of Pittsburgh in the athletic department and public relations. And then I was doing magazines. At the same time, I was doing magazines and I was teaching. I've always liked to do different things. And finally, I decided I, I had been, with 23 years, I was the founding editor of Street and Smith's Basketball Magazine, which was considered the Bible of the business. and was the number one selling basketball magazine in the country. And uh, they made it, I wasn't in New York any longer. I was working in Pittsburgh, and so it was easier for them to do. But somebody in accounting decided I was making too much money. And I lost my position as the editor. I continued to write for them. And I also wrote them a thank you letter for how they had treated me for 23 years. And you know what they did? They said they had never gotten a thank you letter from anybody they had let go. They said, would a second severance package help? They gave me a second severance package. So the moral of the story is, do not burn bridges behind you. I continued to write for them. I was later offered a job to come back as an editor, and I turned it down. I didn't, the water had been soiled. But I, I, I believe that they did treat me fairly, and they, treated, they let me do my own magazine. And uh, I just wanted, I didn't want to be in that position any more. So I decided to write books. What was your first book? It was called Pittsburgh, the Story of the City of Champions. That was the first book in Pittsburgh. I had done pro basketball books in New York. In fact, somebody just died recently. There was an obituary about Xander Hollander from New York who was an editor. And he put out books such as the Complete Handbook of Pro Basketball, the Complete Handbook of Football and Baseball. And I did some of those at the same time as I was doing Street and Smith, at the same time I was writing some individual books. So I did three books in New York before I came back to Pittsburgh. And all my books are printed in Pittsburgh, which I think is important. A lot of books, historical books about Pennsylvania are printed overseas, are printed in the United Kingdom or Korea or Hong Kong. And to me, there's something wrong about that. 
If you're going to do a book about Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania or about Pennsylvania, I think you should do it in Pennsylvania. Have you published all the books yourself? Yes. Self-published? Yes. Self-publishing was probably fairly early when you started doing it. It just means paying the printer. I keep telling people that because people write books and think that somebody should be willing to publish it. Well, they should only be willing to publish it if they can make money. And they have to be able to make money. And I have been able to do that. I do every aspect of the book. I do the layouts. I do the photo procurement. I, I, I like to put pictures in the book where they're appropriate. I like when I introduce a character to you to show you what they look like so that as you read the book, you see them. You can visualize them as you're reading. I think that's a, an aid for the reader. I like to break up my book so that I like to finish a chapter before I go to bed at night. That's why James Patterson's so successful. He has those short chapters. But I, I, I've been told that people feel like they're with me when they're reading the book, that they're traveling with me. And that was always my goal. When I started out, I wanted to take the guys in my neighborhood with me to experience the experiences that I was enjoying. Going to Denver, going to Los Angeles, being in the Super Bowl, being in, at Indianapolis 500, being at ringside, front row and center for Ali Frazier, the fight of the century in New York. I mean, I've had some good seats. Those seats aren't even available anymore. They sell those seats. That's where Jack Nicholson and Spike Lee are sitting these days and paying thousands of dollars a game. We used to sit there as they, they were press, press row seats. And I also decided at one point in my career, you know, I watch television and I see some of my contemporaries such as Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon and Bill Plaschke and Woody Page. I wrote with all those guys. We used to argue sports in the media room like they do on television now. And I see that. And yes, I feel like I missed out on something by pulling myself away when I did. But you know what? When I was a young sports writer traveling on the road with the teams, I found that a lot of writers never mentioned their wives, never mentioned their children. They knew the other guy on the beat better than they knew their families. I didn't want to fall into that trap. I did not want to be on the road when my girls were growing up. And I have two daughters today. My, my Sarah's 40. She is a pediatric oncologist, hematologist, in charge of research in that field at, at uh, Ohio State University, the Ohio State University Medical School. She speaks in Rome and Shanghai and all over the world. And my younger daughter, Rebecca, is the managing partner at California Pizza Kitchen out in Northridge, California. And she won Operator of the Year last year out of 250 restaurants. And guess who coached them? I couldn't coach them how to play sports. During the Winter Olympics, I called them both and I said, I'm sorry that I cost you girls Olympic medals, that I didn't put you in ice skates when you were two years old, or, or put you on a hockey rink or something. But to me, if you're going to be successful, you have to have a successful marriage, a good wife, and your kids have to be doing well. And then, you've, then you can say you're, you've done something worthwhile. And I think that I've been lucky to have met a lot of people in my travels that you pick up from. I think you should always look for role models. You know, Chuck Noll was a great family man. Chuck Noll had one son, Chris, but he was always offering advice on how to be a good father. And one of the writers who covered the team said, did you notice that Dan Rooney, who has nine children, he did at the time, he's lost two of them, 
that he had nine children, and he never offered any advice on how to be a good father. So Noel knew something about wine, he knew something about cheese, he knew something about history, he knew something about everything. And that's why he was fascinating. And he was also, uh, he had his own ego. Don't think he didn't have an ego, but it, was, it wasn't an ego that needed to be stroked by somebody else. He was confident in his own company. And he could be funny. You know, he used to sing a song, Mama, don't let your son grow up to be cowboys. And he would add a line, or oilers. So he, he could, but he also said, he recognized the shortcomings in that regard. He said, Germans aren't funny. Germans don't make good comedians. Did he have the kind of relationship with his players that, uh, that Art Rooney Sr. had? No, because it's always easier, for instance, the, it's always easier for the assistant coaches to be loved by the players because they don't have to make the hard decisions. And they, they, they work at stroking them and patting them on the back and massaging their egos. You know, Terry Bradshaw, for instance, who had his complaints about Chuck Knoll, but Chuck Knoll made him the great quarterback he was. He might have been happier with a coach, say, Sam Ritigliano of the Cleveland Browns. You know, Italians are warmer huggers, more so than the, either the Irish or the Italians. I mean, no, the Irish or the Germans. So he might have been happier with Sam Ritigliano. God, he could have played for Bill Belichick, and that, that can't be uh, a lot of hugs and kisses. Yet Tom Brady's one of the, maybe the best quarterback of them all today. So it takes different kinds. But I think that as far as Noel was concerned, there was no problem with Terry Bradshaw. That was Terry Bradshaw's problem. Did, did, how did Chuck Noll cut somebody from the team? Reluctantly. He was good. For instance, like he didn't want to talk about anybody who wasn't around it. Anybody that was not practicing, was not under his guidance, he didn't want to talk about them. So if you brought up the subject, and that's how that Franco who came out. Somebody mentioned Franco, and he was holding out for a better contract. And Chuck Noll was just trying to be funny. And as he, as he admits, he's not funny. But he just said, Franco who? But he wasn't being derisive. He wasn't putting down Franco Harris. He was, put, he was just, I don't want to deal with that subject. Next subject. I went to press conferences of Chuck Noll's, and I could tell you what answers he would give to every question at the table, or when he was just going to go and not answer it at all. Smart man, smart man. And, and I got off on the wrong foot with him because I came to town in 1979 from New York after nine years in New York and a year before that in Miami. And I was determined to be a positive writer. I was determined not to get myself caught up in any controversies and so forth. I come to town. Jack Lambert gets smacked upside the head with a mug, glass mug in a bar in downtown Pittsburgh, not far from where we are today, this TV studio. And I found out about it. And I found out that the editor of my paper knew about it, the police reporter on the other paper knew about it, the writer on the other paper knew about it. Nobody was touching the story because it was a stealer. I tried to get a hold of Lambert, couldn't get a hold of him, went to see Noel. Noel was not helping me. Noel, I don't know whether Noel was upset with me or Jack Lambert the most. But it was really a serious situation. These guys were bad news who attacked Jack Lambert. And they wanted to cut the veins, the ligaments in his legs so that he couldn't play football anymore. Get this, and this is in my book. One of the guys who didn't jump him, two guys jumped him and the third didn't. The guy who didn't jump him was later shot and killed in a for-hire 
assassination by one of the two people that jumped Jack Lambert. He was so upset with him going down the road that he had him killed. He paid to have him killed. That's how bad these guys were. How many of those stories like that did you hear about and everybody sort of knew but nobody wrote about? Well, I think that there, there's some others. Uh, there's, nobody dug too deeply on the steroids. Nobody dug too deeply into the, some of the Rooney activity and bootlegging and things like that in the early days, running uh, horse rooms, as they called them, you know, where you bet on the races and stuff like that. He was a sportsman, and he wasn't unique. Uh, the Maras were into bookmaking they, uh, that owned the Giants. The people that owned the Chicago Bears and the people who owned the sports teams and the hockey teams, most of the people who run the, ran those buildings were all into boxing when boxing had mob influence and so forth. So, hey, it goes back to when I was a kid growing up in the inner city of Pittsburgh. I used to be good at going out and collecting money to buy uniforms for our football team. This is when I was 13 and 14 years old. You know the first place you went? The numbers writers. The numbers writers, because they had money, they were sportsmen, they were interested in sports, and they were good guys. They were good guys. And they'd, they'd give you money. The one thing that I did was when, when I'd see these cards, they called them booster cards, and they had these blocks that you bought space on the card, show your support. And there'd be six or seven spaces that said, compliments of a friend. Well, the friend, they were always the bookies. They didn't want to put their names in there because they didn't want to get into trouble with the law. I saw, saw that. You know what I did? I sold the same space to seven different bookies. I said, there's your space. Because <laughs> I got more money. Got more money. It wasn't illegal. There, there's your space. My wife went to a cemetery with me a couple years ago, and there were a lot of soldiers buried in the cemetery. And she noticed that some of the stones, individual stones said, unknown soldier unknown soldier, unknown soldier. And she remembered that story about me and the booster card. And she said, if you ran this cemetery, you'd have all those soldiers in one grave site. <laughs> unknown soldier. And she's probably right. You said that, um, that Chuck Knoll was not an easy interview. No. But um, what was he like after a loss? Now, he wasn't any different after a loss than he was after a victory. Because he was already thinking about the next game. He just wasn't into reflection until he retired. And his players saw a different Chuck Noll when he retired also, whenever he would come in for golf outings and fundraisers and so forth. They found him to be much more relaxed. And, and they, weren't a, they had been intimidated by him. They were afraid of him. And I used to, I always used to, I'd hit tennis balls with him from time to time, but he would only hit with me. He wouldn't play. And he wouldn't, some of the other writers like to play tennis. He wouldn't play writers. And his wife said, he's not going to risk losing a tennis match to a sports writer. He couldn't deal with that. So, but I learned, you know, again, in those days, for instance, when Chuck Noll was running the team, they had a happy hour after practice. You would go to this room and there was, there was you could have booze of any kind, beer, whiskey, I was into beer, and the coaches would have a drink with you, but everything was off the record. There was just more of a gentleman's understanding in those days about a lot of things. And my feeling, and it's, and it's still there today, I feel that if they're comfortable in my company, if they don't think I'm out to get them, they're going to be more approachable, they're going to suffer my interviews, and they're going to give me something to write about. And all I care about are stories. My books are not, and you can, you can attest to this because you've read many of them, they're not about games. 
They're not about statistics. They're about people. And if you follow these teams and you're truly interested in learning something, not only about Chuck Knoll or Art Rooney or Dan Rooney, but you'll learn something that is applicable to what you do, to what you do. And I tell people that I feel that sports fans in Pittsburgh in particular, which is my neck of the woods, they rely too much on the Pirates, the Penguins, the Steelers, Pitt, Penn State. They rely too much on them for their accomplishment, their success. I think you should put your own game on the line. Find your own game that you can play for life, whether it's golf or tennis or a game I now play called pickleball. It's getting to be very popular among seniors. Put your own game on the line. And dismiss the Steeler defeats or the Pirates defeats or the Penguin setbacks because you shouldn't live off those teams. And people do. It makes their day, it makes their weekend, and in some cases, sad to say, it makes their lives. I think sports is to be enjoyed. I've been playing it all my life. Not well, but enthusiastically. Before we run out of time, we should mention this other book. Is this is Immaculate Reflections? Is this the one you wrote just before yes. the Chuck Knoll book? Yes. Immaculate Reflections is a takeoff, of course, on Immaculate Reception. But it's stories, inside stories, about the Pirates, Penguins, Steelers, Pitt, Carnegie Mellon, Duquesne University. I've been covering sports. We started off talking about this. I've been covering it for over 50-some years. I know a little bit about it. I know a little bit about sports in Pittsburgh, Western Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia. And I share that with the reader. So that book is for the person who likes all sports, or hopefully who likes Jim O'Brien's stories. How much of your time is spent selling the books? A lot. It's easy to write a book. It's much more difficult to sell a book. But I'm good at that, too, because that kid that used to go out with a booster card and get money for the football uniforms or sold the Post-Gazette, had a paper route. I always tell people that everything I needed to know about being successful, I learned by being a newspaper boy as a kid. You have to get up earlier than everybody else. You have to go out in bad weather. You have to go out every day. You have to collect money. You can't lose it. You can't spend it you know, in a stupid manner. And you gotta knock on doors. And about one third of my subscribers were in the black community where I lived. So as an early age, I was used to dealing with people of all ethnic, all ethnic backgrounds and I've often thought that one of my advantages as a writer is, for, I don't know why, I can't explain it, but I think I enjoy a unique relationship with black athletes. I've, whether it was Will Chamberlain or Joe Green or you name it, Elsie Greenwood who just died this past year, uh, Dave Parker of the Pirates, uh, they talked to me. And they often said, I don't feel like I'm being interviewed. I just feel like we're talking, like you and I. I want to ask you, uh, I looked up uh, to refresh my memory Chuck Knoll's coaching record and, and was reminded that in his last seven years with the Steelers, they made the playoffs once. I think it was time that Was that his they job ever in jeopardy? No, no, it was his decision. But I think that he also was getting frustrated. Things were changing. He could not have dealt with the free agency situation, with players picking up and leaving. I mean, when they won the four Super Bowls, they had about 22 or 24 players on all four teams. That doesn't happen today. 
And today, you, just when you get a player ready to play in the National Football League, he's gone. He's gone. Say, say that Keenan Lewis, the defensive back of the Steelers, he's gone, and he's ready to play now. And you've trained him, but he's, you're training him for somebody else. We also tell a story about Mel Blunt, and he sued the Steelers, and he said in 1975 he was NFL Defensive Player of the Year and led the league in interceptions, and he was paid uh, under $50,000 a year. And the, uh, this Jim Boston, who negotiated contracts for the Steelers, offered him a $5,000 raise, and he said, you either take this or you'll starve to death before free agency. Yeah, Jim Boston wasn't, uh, didn't have a lot of tact. He, was, he, he goes back to the earlier days of the Rooney organization, and there was some rough edges, some rough edges. Uh, there's lessons to be learned. I think there's interesting stories in there. Mel Blount always says about my books, he says, you keep us alive. You keep us alive. Dick LeBeau says, uh, we did it, and you certify it. And I think that um, the bottom line is that uh, the Steeler players express themselves quite candidly in this book. They, they do up. They, they weren't all thrilled. Many of the black players were upset whenever uh, Noel went with Terry Bradshaw over Joe Gilliam. They felt that Gilliam was treated unfairly, that he deserved to be the starter. I think in the long run that they recognize, and even Terry Hanready recognizes, that Bradshaw was the right choice. But it's Terry Hanratty and Art Rooney Jr. say, Chuck Knoll, the most important person in the history of the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I think if you read A Winning Way, you'll, you'll understand why. He must have been a tough act to follow as a coach. I mean, who wants to be the coach to follow him? Well, Bill Cowher was his own person, to his credit. He was his own person. And he never really sought out Chuck Knoll for advice. Chuck Knoll was supposed to be the consultant. But he didn't force himself on Cower, and Cower didn't know. Cower knew what the standards were. He knew what, but I think Cower was smart in being himself. I think I'm very impressed with Mike Tomlin. He's himself. Uh, but Knowles put a, an organization together that still exists today. It's not quite the same because Art Rooney's not there anymore. Art Rooney had a spirit that pervaded the entire organization, and people didn't want to get in trouble, didn't want to cause any uh, discomfort for the owner because they liked him. You know, he was, he was their guy. We're just about out of time. How many books have you written now? I've written uh, three in, about pro basketball. Then I came to Pittsburgh and I've written 22 books. And I, I'm working on a couple books right now. It depends. I'll have to talk to my wife a little bit and see about that. But that's what I do. I'm a book writer. And the late Dwight White, who was he used to growl at me and try to intimidate me, as did Lambert and so forth. But um, he called me Bookman, Bookman, and that's that's who I am, Bookman. Well, we're out of time. We've been speaking with Jim O'Brien. He's the author of many books on Pittsburgh sports, including this one, the latest one, Chuck Knoll, A Winning Way. Thank you, Jim O'Brien. Brian, thanks for doing your homework. It's nice to Chuck Knoll. Be proud of you because you uh, you do your homework and you're prepared. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.